0: The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath.
1: Thank you for listening to the show. That brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. But now for today's show. In this series, C.S. Lewis expert Professor Alistair McGrath is delving into the Space Trilogy, arguably one of Lewis's lesser-known works of fiction. We'll be exploring the three books in the trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra and That Hideous Strength. Still, let's move on to have a quick look at some of the characters in the book. I mean, there's a lot more characters than in previous books, so hopefully we'll just skim over these as quickly as possible. But Jane is probably the key character in the book. And as you say, a lot of the other characters around her are very dominantly male. Did Lewis have a particular person or idea in mind when he was creating the character of Jane, do you
2: think? um People wonder, well, this is Jane McNeil, who, of course, was one of um, Lewis's childhood friends. Uh, Arthur Greaves knew her very well as well. I, I I, think perhaps Jane is just being used as a common name, as sort of a representative name. If you think of children's books of the times, you know, Jane was a very common name used for a representative female figure. So let's assume that she's just um, a representative figure rather than someone who was there to embody a particular school of thought, something like that. The key point is this is a woman in a predominantly male world, and therefore she's able to experience two things. One is a sense of puzzlement of what's going on. The other is a sense of exclusion. You know, this I'm not really part of this. And that, I think, um, uh, basically helps us to understand her sense of disillusionment um uh, at many things she sees going on around her, so I think she's she's there as a bellwether a sort of piece of litmus paper who helps us to take the temperature of what is actually going on if you like, she is someone who is able to see as an external observer i e not not really a scientist but certainly not a male who's able to say this 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 doesn't sound right to me
1: I mean there are a few moments that are a little bit confusing when it comes to Jane, for instance, there's a moment where um she's looking for help in a particular area and the professional that, that that she's suggested is a woman and not a man and it says jane had assumed it would be a man and was rather repelled what what's going on there is it, that's quite a strange a strange thing for for jane to have wanted the professional to have been a, a male and and that then been disappointed that it was a female.
2: It's not entirely clear. I mean, what I think is that she's saying it, it's socially um, normal to find a male here. And therefore, if we find a female, it might be a rather strange female, you know, and, and that that's a, a point that uh, becomes art with uh, Miss Hardcastle, in particular, who Miss, Miss Hardcastle... Um, <laughs> Uh, it strikes me as being a very strange person. Um, and in, in, indeed, you know, some of the things she gets up to, uh, you know, she's into um, various forms of physical abuse, for example, you know, and that's scary. And I think one of the things that um, Jane discovers is that sometimes it's um, the females who are active in this area, very often to be rather unattractive and, and worrying figures.
1: We, yeah, I suppose in some ways if if um if anyone is the antithesis of a kind of female stereotype, then it's Miss Hardcastle. Well isn't yes, it? I
2: mean she's she's portrayed as, as um having all the worst characteristics of a man, if I can put it very, very crudely. I mean, for example, um th- there's one point mm. where um in effect she she's portrayed as going down to the cells and physically abusing, possibly sexually abusing her victims. Um, And and you just come away feeling this doesn't sound good to me. But then Lewis's point is actually this is what's happening in this institute as a whole. The unacknowledged abuse of human beings.
1: Then I suppose on the flip side, there does seem to be quite a lot of stereotyping women, sweeping generalisations. Uh, I mean, e- even when it comes to Jane, just this kind of casual sexism that it's not possible to have a children and career. Um, and then, you know, there's a there's an episode where they're talking about hats and she had a contempt for the kind of women who buy hats. And is that just Lewis writing as a product of his time? Or do you think there's kind of more to it, um, uh, it around these kind of female stereotypes that that Lewis is portraying in the book?
2: Well, I think there is a real cause for concern here. I mean, scholars do very often point out that um, women are not um, often well portrayed in Lewis's novels. And this this would seem to me to be an example of that. I think we can offer explanations for it. Um, But nevertheless, to a modern reader, this does seem a little bit worrying. And also, I think if I'm put like this, it makes it difficult to step into this world and feel that Lewis is being credible and plausible. I think that that, that's one of the concerns that many people express that, that Lewis's depiction of women um, suggests he himself shares in these stereotypical views rather than simply representing these as the unacceptable views of these male scientists. There are points where he does suggest that, but actually you have the impression that actually he shares in these views at many points.
1: Now, Lewis included a couple of clergymen in That Hideous Strength, which, you know, they they seem sort of slightly at odds with this anti-Christianity, uh, um, the scientism that's sort of anti-Christianity. I mean, Rev Strake, is that how we say his name? He's a very interesting character, isn't he?
2: Well, he's very critical of the Reverend Strake. Um, I mean, uh, we don't quite know who he's modelled on. He might be a college chaplain. Again, Lewis was quite often concerned that college chaplains were kind of way people who just went along with college dons rather than critiquing them. But I think if you look at the Great Divorce, which I think is, a, is another very good example of Lewis critiquing clergy, there you find him mounting a very powerful critique of trendy bishops who in effect um, don't believe in Christianity, but believe that religion is a kind of social process which is generally good, but has has no interest in the specifics or the distinctiveness of Christianity. So you could say that um, Lewis is here portraying the reverend strike as a kind of chaplain, as a rather naive chaplain to this um, institute and uh, has theological ideas, which frankly are bizarre. They really are really? all over the place. And Lewis, I think, is, is suggesting that, um, that modern Christianity has perhaps lost its rootings in, in, in the Christian tradition
1: I mean, one of the characters, uh, Lewis describes a really strange technique that one of the characters employs where he's learned to withdraw sort of some of his consciousness. Um, I think it says that, yeah, that he's um, learned to um, conduct business even with only a quarter of his mind. Do you think that's theoretically possible? And and where has Lewis got this idea from? Or is it just something that he's completely made up?
2: Well, I, I, I haven't been able to find anything that really... Um corresponds exactly with that. I mean, Lewis may be hinting at um, the growing interest in doing physical experiments on human beings to determine what the various components of their brains did. And sometimes that might involve at least a hypothetical neutralization of part of the brain to see what difference it makes. Um very often of course this this was a result of road and some of the guts you could actually determine what was going on rather than actually deliberately inflicting these things. So I don't don't quite know where this is coming from, but um certainly again it's Lewis's concern about experimentation which might lead you into some very bad places.
1: Well, and then there's another character who we're effectively told has managed to remove all of his emotions. Again, was Lewis trying to convey anything in particular through this? And was he sort of alluding to anyone that he might know who who sort of tried to do this? And was he sort of bringing any commentary to bear on this?
2: Well, certainly Lewis's social criticism here would seem to be for those who um, said, in effect, that experiencing emotions is dangerous. It kind of way um, makes you unreliable. It affects your objectivity. And there were those who would say, in effect, the suppression of emotion is essential to objectivity, whether scientific or um, you know moral. But I think that one of the points that is worth making is that this does go back to Lewis's lectures, The Abolition of Man. Well, one of the concerns is that the, the suppression of natural human um, processes like, for example, feelings, if I can like that, actually <laughs> doesn't necessarily lead to a more objective and realistic um, account of nature. It actually suppresses a legitimate human response to the natural world and our understanding of our place within it. And so you can see how here we have uh, one of these themes that's so important for Lewis that somehow there's a danger we are suppressing something very important that is integral to human identity. And by suppressing it, we are abolishing human nature.
1: Alistair, Mr. McPhee is kind of the friendly sceptic of the book. Why does Lewis view his role as such an important one? And is he meant to represent anyone in particular?
2: I don't think... um, He represents anyone in particular, though again, you can see easily how Lewis would um, have people like that uh, in mind from his own experience in senior common rooms at Oxford. So, uh, you know, Mr. McPhee really is a kind of resident skeptic. Um, And and I think that um, Lewis uses him to really help him explore some issues. But I have to say, really, it's Lewis, in effect, imposing is concerns on the narrative through McPhee rather than um, them kind of naturally emerging during the conversations that speak.
1: Do you think there's anything that Lewis would have thought might help sceptics like McPhee to believe, I guess in Lewis's case, in God?
2: Well, I think one one of the things that uh, is very significant in that hideous strength is that the almost um, neutralisation of any any presence of God, means that the question becomes, in making moral decisions, what is the goal we are aiming for? And of course, these people have a purely secular goal, which is the enhancement of humanity, so it can survive better. And what Lewis is really saying, I think, is that this has become God, this, this objective is divine, frankly, like God, or rather a surrogate for God. And Lewis, of course, makes the point very clearly. This is this is a false god. This is a failed god because when you begin to pursue this goal, you end up achieving a very questionable objective through very questionable means. And Lewis, I think, is really saying that without some sort of restraining influence on your moral goals, your moral compass, you're going to end up in some very bad places. So, if you like that hideous strength. Um, in effect, reminds us of the importance of God by depicting an institution which God simply does not really play a major role.
0: The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath.
1: We need to take a short break, but before we get back to the discussion, I want to invite you to take a look at a new unbelievable course. It's called Did It Really Happen? The Birth of Jesus. Perhaps you've been asked questions about the historicity of Jesus, or maybe you have questions of your own. We've made an in-depth course with experts and theologians diving into the historical accuracy and arguments for and against the Jesus birth narratives. You will be guided through all areas of the discussion with N.T. Wright, Emil Ewing, Daryl Bock and others. Check it out by visiting premierunbelievable.com slash courses.
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection, and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask He Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection, and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash CS Lewis. That's premierinsight.org forward slash CS Lewis. Thank you.
1: One of the topics that's talked about is, is marriage. I mean, where did Lewis get some of these insights from? Because he wasn't married himself when he was writing this trilogy.
2: No, he wasn't, uh, and Lewis, I think, probably was drawing on this, his experience of the marriage of his friends. Um, in other words, seeing the difference that his his friends' marriages made to them. I think it's it, it's very interesting to see how um, you know Lewis does seem to think you can't really have children have a career. I mean, that that seems to be. Something that reflects, um, you know, the social conventions of the time, where the woman was the carer, and again, Lewis might be thinking of his friend J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, I, that, that was that's a very good example of that. Um, but again, his views of marriage do seem awfully socially located. You know, in other words, they're kind of middle class Britain in the 1940s, and I think that. Um, you know, with all novels who are, which are based on a particular time, there are always things that stand out as being that's the way it was. That's not how they are now. And I'm you know, not sure we'd like them to be like that. And I think that's the impression very often I get in reading that aspect of the hideous strength.
1: Well, yeah, because Jane seems to have a very negative view of marriage, doesn't she? She says, you know, she was at least very vividly aware of how much a woman gives up in getting married. But that does seem to be contrasted with the Dimbles who are very happily married. And then also we get the Dennistons who, if we're to believe Lewis, seem to have only got married because they both like the weather. But there are some topics that are drawn on that seem, you know, like a broader application than just marriage. I guess things around equality and obedience and love and some of the things that were explored I mean, one of the um, things that Jane seems to represent what I think would be sort of quite an uncontroversial view of equality of marriage in our society, um, where she says that she thought love meant equality. And actually, um, one of the characters pushes against that and says that equality isn't the deepest thing. Do you think Lewis was trying to say something important here about equality and love uh, and things like that?
2: Well, I think so. And again, if we look at lewis's own marriage to joy daverman um he saw her as a literary writer and one who could help him develop his own work and of course you'll know that um joy daverman really helped lewis get over the difficulties having with writing till we have faces so again that's that's an example of equals helping lewis to create and i think that that may well be his, his his idealization what marriage is all about
1: and again, we talked about sort of modern in terms of education, but there seems to be a differentiation between a traditional view of marriage and a modern view of marriage. Again, what what does Lewis mean by this? And was he expounding a particular view? Was he more of a traditionist when it when it came to marriage?
2: Well, Lewis, I think, was a traditionist in many ways, um, and I think his critique of modern customs, modern ideas, is, is twofold. Number one. Modern in the sense of this isn't going to last. In other words, it's transient. And one of the things that Lewis is trying to bring out is that very often a modern idea is to be critiqued because it does not have the staying power of a classical idea. And that, that's a, a very big theme in his critique of what he calls um, chronological snobbery. You know, that in effect, you think the best is is. is is the most recent, and Lewis saying, no, it's not. And the classical very often has staying power. So that's one point. But I think the other thing is that very often Lewis is trying to portray the modern as, in effect, resting on ideological foundations which are inadequate. In other words, it's not something that has been found to be the best, but simply on the basis of current thinking about things is seen to embody what is fashionable at the moment. So I I think Lewis basically is, is not saying... Um, You know, traditional view of marriage is best. He's saying, in effect, that its alternatives very often are based on untested assumptions, and we need to know how this works out in the longer term.
1: And there's a throwaway line which seems rather strange, which is, "Obedience, humility is an erotic necessity." Do we have any idea what Lewis means here?
2: Yes, that's what Ransom says, Um, and it's not always entirely clear um, what he's getting at there. I mean, it's a rather cynical um, um, point, I think, because uh, it does seem to be saying that this is simply a situation that arises out of necessity to cope with this. We have to do these things. But again, you know... if we look at the end of Perilanda we have that wonderful image of a dance which is about participation joyful in something that's beautiful and ordered and significant actually Um, Ransom does say to be fair to him that obedience is more like a dance than a drill and that seems to me to say it's being part of something and by stepping into it you actually go by the rules because that's how you get the most out of it it is by in effect seeing how you fit in you maximise your satisfaction and joy uh, at doing this. So there may be something deeper going on there in the background.
1: I mean do you think it would have been controversial at the time of publication for there to be a few allusions to homosexuality in that hideous strength?
2: Um, it was being talked about in literature at the time in a rather subtle and indirect way and Lewis may have felt that this was a way of beginning to address that question. Of course his friend Arthur Greaves. Um, would have been in his mind, probably, as he talked about these things.
1: And as you alluded to before, the same-sex rape seems to occur in the book. I mean, is there a particular reason, do you think, that Lewis includes this? Was he drawing on anything that he knew, or was it just something that he wanted to raise almost as a kind of depiction of evil?
2: I think Lewis is using that. Uh, it's hinted that, I have to say, not explicitly described as a way of, of in effect, um, portraying the control that certain people try to have over other people. So I think Lewis is really there contextualizing that in, the, in, the, in terms of somebody having control over people and in doing so exploiting them in various ways.
1: And so why do we think Lewis included some of these references to sexuality? Was that something that he was just thinking about a lot because of Arthur Greaves and because of some of the things that you've mentioned?
2: Well, it could be, but I think again, Lewis, this is a very dysfunctional novel and it may well be that Lewis wanted to portray every aspect of a dysfunctional society and felt therefore he had to engage with um, sexual issues, with questions that wouldn't have been talked about, uh, particularly in more um, progressive parts of society who he wanted to read this book.
1: Do we know his thoughts around homosexuality?
2: Um, Lewis um, obviously was very, very close to Arthur Greaves and respected him at every level while at the same time saying that this is something he himself was not.
1: Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And do register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time.